Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. Today, I will be speaking with John J. Marini, MD, on the article Dealing with the Cards of COVID-19, published in Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Marini is the Director of Physiology and Translational Research at Regions Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Marini. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures you'd like to share with us? No, Kyle, I do not. I want to thank you for um, taking the time to uh, join me today. I know that we are all challenged for um, time with uh, what we have been experiencing with dealing with the, the patients and, and the competing demands on our schedules. Um, your article uh, coins this phrase of corona disease-associated acute respiratory distress syndrome. I wanted to start by asking you, why do you think this disease is separate from the traditional ARDS that most of us have become increasingly familiar with in our careers? Well, Kyle, I've always been a little bit concerned that the definition of ARDS was entirely too broad. It's oxygenation-based. It does not have anything to do with compliance uh, in the current uh, implementation. Now, uh, in, uh, in a certain sense, the ARDS that is associated with COVID is fitting the definition. In other words, it has hypoxemia. It comes on relatively acutely. Uh, and it's uh, a severe problem that can be refractory. Uh, it does have infiltrates, but the infiltrates are not at all like we usually encounter in the first phase. It's very important to draw a distinction between the first phase of COVID uh, ARDS, which I'll call CARDS, just to distinguish it, uh, and the later phase, where it may resemble much more closely uh, the conventional ARDS that we're used to seeing with either sepsis or pneumonia. I think, you know, I think we've all definitely seen the progression of disease in, in our patient populations. Um, I know that one of the things that has been most striking to me and you highlight in your article uh, is the, the impact of um, thrombotic disease in these patients uh, and how that really in, uh, influences the hypoxemia and the lung mechanics. Yeah, in fact, that's the, uh, the cornerstone here. And I think that some disagree uh, or did disagree, I don't think they disagree anymore, that there's a strong vascular component that may actually initiate the problems with hypoxemia. Now, normally, we match ventilation to perfusion in the lung uh, very carefully, and we have mechanisms within the blood vessels to do that. But COVID-19 is uh, avid for the endothelium, the lining of the blood vessels, and it almost certainly disrupts the hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction and the other mechanisms that we use to regulate the perfusion to ventilation matching. And when it does that, uh, it sends blood flow through areas that should not have it. Um, there are some definitely uh, abnormal areas, uh, gasless areas, in, even in the early phase, uh, and those ground glass infiltrates uh, indicate that there is. Um, However, they're actually very small in number in comparison to what we usually see associated with this degree of hypoxemia. And that's because the vasoregulation is impaired. 
Now, we're not completely certain when it happens that there is a lot of thrombosis. Uh, it may be from the start that it begins, or it may be quite late. And I have the, um, the thought that it, it happens uh, in, after the disease is fairly well uh, along. In other words, thrombosis and dead space generation on that basis uh, is more likely to occur later rather than earlier. In your paper, um, you referenced the, the article written by uh, Mori and Spinelli from Italy that was entitled Potential for Lung Recruitment and Ventilation Perfusion Mismatch in Patients with Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome from COVID-19 uh, Disease. It was also published in Critical Care Medicine. Uh, I wanted uh, what your thoughts were uh, on the way they went about uh, describing uh, lung disease, particularly the use of EIT, which is I think not something that the U.S. the U.S. intensivists use a lot of, but I know has been growing in popularity in Europe, uh, and and how we should be approaching interpreting those data. First of all, I admire anyone who can do physiological research uh, in the setting of COVID nineteen uh, assault. It, it is really uh, impressive that they were able to do this. Uh, they are brilliant investigators, I think. Uh, the paper has its flaws. I pointed those out in the uh, editorial, but I'm impressed that they were able to conduct it at all. EIT is uh, a very attractive technology in that it is a dynamic technology. We can look at our patients in real time, not take a frozen uh, image like we normally do with CT scanning, for example. CT scanning is much more precise and dual energy CT scanning can give us the perfusion and gas um, distribution uh, that uh, EIT never can. EIT is, is more crude and it's segmental. It doesn't look at the entire lung. So I would have to say that EIT is a convenient bedside uh, technique for following what's going on. And it, when you're looking at expansion and contraction like uh, they were, then I think it, uh, it was uh, an ideal uh, methodology. Uh, not, it was lacking in precision, but uh, definitely as good as we can do in the current clinical setting. I had some other concerns about the, uh, uh, you know, the dead space calculation, for example, which was not done in a conventional way. Uh, it, it is a, an, a, a an approximation. And so they were using two approximation techniques to get to some vital information, which I think were accurate observations in the end. Not precise, but accurate. And, and you know, you mentioned the challenges with doing physiology research in this patient population, but you also seem to speak to the fact that we urgently need that physiology research uh, if we were to care for these patients better. It, if you were you know, able to, how would you think about approaching this problem so that we can get uh, additional information that might lead to better management um, techniques for uh, a growing population of patients that we'll probably be caring for for the next you know, months to years? That's, that's a challenging question. <laughs> um, basically, Kyle, I think we have to start with better education of our physicians in, in physiology. One of the things about COVID-19 uh, that is so impressive and so valuable is that it has reemphasized 
to critical care practitioners that they need to know physiology. They need to track physiology uh, even more carefully than they did before. Uh, there are a host of, of uh, different technologies which I would have brought to bear had I known uh, from the start what COVID-19 was all about, that dead space was a big prob problem, that I needed to track dead space, as was pointed out in the, in the Maori article. Dead space can be easily uh, detected and tracked and monitored at the bedside. We never think about the efficiency of ventilation, but that is what's telling us about the shrinking baby lung, uh, its, uh, its difficulty in ventilation and keeping up with the body's needs. I, I, could, I could go on, but uh, I, let me put it this way. Um, COVID-19 is like an elephant. Uh, and it's come into our environment and we're blinded. And like the blind man and the elephant, uh, if I feel the leg, I feel like it's a column. If I feel the tail, I feel like it's a rope. I have to gather all of those pieces of information together before I really understand the evolution of the disease and what it actually looks like and what the real threats are. In fact, this is an analogy that uh, one of your editors uh, Phil Dellinger and Daniel Brody, uh, who's from New York and a very highly respected uh, investigator and ECMO specialist, we wrote uh, an editorial which will appear soon in Critical Care Medicine about the COVID elephant and why we need to be uh, we need to be collecting observations to construct it into uh, a picture that can then guide us in what we need to do. Evidence-based medicine, as people understand it to be these days will not help us much until it's far advanced. When it's far advanced and it moves from its initial stage to its later phase, then we can begin to apply the same um, guidelines as, as we have uh, established. In the early phase, it is a kinetic problem and we may be doing exactly the wrong things, trying to open the lung, et cetera. Uh, uh, other pieces that would be ideal uh, would be to monitor esophageal pressure so we know the transpulmonary pressure across the lung, uh, which almost certainly the strong efforts that patients make when they're very dysmic and when they're crash intubated, uh, just before they're crash intubated, uh, are accentuating the problem. And if we know that those, uh, those problems are developing, uh, whatever way we want to monitor it with physical signs or more precisely with an esophageal balloon, that could help us a lot. Yeah, I was, I, 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 as I listen to you speak, I'm, I'm, you know, thoughtful about the fact that I think many of us, at least of my generation, came to critical care medicine because of our love of physiology. Uh, we had a period of our lives where uh, physiology was relevant, but not as accentuated in our daily practice. And now we're going back to a point in time where our daily practice really is revolving around physiology again, uh, and we're having to to you know reuse those memory tracks that weren't as used for the past five ten years. Um, but I do you know I do also see that in our in our residents and our nurse practitioners and in our fellows um, this new kindling of how uh, exciting it is to be in an area of medicine where uh, we have to think about each problem critically and not. Um, just apply the bundles that we know are good for patient, but apply those bundles plus uh, think about what's happening to this patient. I agree entirely. 
as you think about the, the, the need for observations, uh, which you know, we all know that many of our scientific advances began with uh, great uh, observations and, and case series. We've also seen in this epidemic how um, the very rapid reporting of information ha has led to um, some misinterpretation of data that then gets spread through uh, various media to um, be wide, you know, widespread usage. Um, the early evidence for hydroxychloroquine really led to sort of a, 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 a rush to put everyone on hydroxychloroquine, and now we're rethinking uh, that data based on as evidence comes out. How do we as physicians um, uh, both make observations and share observations, uh, but temper our response to those observations as they come in? Uh, I, I, I like your observation very much. Uh, it, it it harkens back to the elephant, the blind men and the elephant, uh, each, each reporting what the elephant looks like from a little piece of information and a little bit of experience that they have. Um, integrating it all uh, is what we need to do before we design proactive trials treatment. Certain things are incontrovertible, and I, and I certainly um, am very grateful for a lot of the reporting that's been done Regarding thrombosis, for example, we know now that uh, this is a, a major risk for all patients. Uh, some will succumb to uh, major, major thromboemboli, some will uh, succumb to the microthrombi that affect the kidneys, the lung, and the liver, uh, among other vital organs, and brain. Uh, so as people make observations, I wish they would couch them in terms of observations. And I'm less impressed with the uh, therapeutics that have been applied. Uh, observe what is happening with those patients, and we can put it together eventually. And working with the laboratory colleagues, working with uh, epidemiology colleagues, working with, with physiologists and, and laboratory studies uh, that are done in, in animals, I think we can make a great deal of progress. But this is not going to go away. Uh, COVID-19 is the surge may be waning. It may be a little bit uh, more optimistic at the moment, but almost everyone believes it's going to come back. And when it comes back, we need to know what it looks like. Uh, it, it might come back as itself, COVID-19, or of some even more dangerous uh, uh, mutation. You know, I, I, you were just commenting on the, the, the need to put all these uh, pieces of information together um, and take what we're learning from the epidemiologist and from the bench scientist and from the physiologist uh, to really move forward with therapeutics and, and how uh, COVID-19 is, is here for the, the long uh, haul. It's going to be part of our medical care for, for a while. What do you see as the mechanism for um, intensivists to really engage the multidisciplinary um, structure across multiple institutions so we can assemble all of those observations. Um, we each have our individual um, experience. Um, some places have been challenged by the sheer number of patients they have had and, and the needs to try to extract that experience almost retrospectively. Um, we've been fortunate enough to be able to, to maybe be uh, slightly more thoughtful. Um, as we move into maybe this waning period of the surge, uh, what steps do you think we should take as a society to, to pull all of our observations together so we can prepare for the fall? 
Well, the first is to uh, put aside our competitive uh, instincts, which really are pervasive in science, um, and to pull it together, pull our observations together. Uh, electronic medical records make it much more um, reasonable to do that these days than uh, in even a decade past. Um, almost all hospitals now have electronic medical records that they can um, code and uh, access information from. Uh, how, how it's put together, I'm not an expert in that, Kyle. Uh, I think that the important thing is to uh, collect the information, uh, actually conduct a few more physiological uh, probes and studies, follow trends, um, timestamp our observations. This is a, this is a very important piece uh, in my my view. Um, I work closely with uh, Dr. Gatnoni, uh, Luciano Gatnoni, uh, who's in Gottingen now, was in Milan, is really wired into northern Italy, and uh, we have, uh, in going through the data that he has available, uh, come to the conclusion that the timing is extremely important. We even have a paper coming out on that. The time, uh, in other words, uh, if a patient presents to the hospital, let's say uh, two weeks after their very first symptoms, they're likely to be in much worse shape than someone who presents to the hospital five days before, uh, who, whose onset was five days before, because it has an evolution. And the, the more uh, time we let go by, the more vigorous are the uh, aggressive breathing efforts, the more likely it is that there'll be ventilator-induced lung injury, the more likely it is that we're going to see very difficult patients to manage. So these observations do need to be time-stamped in the sense of, you know, when did the symptoms begin? When, uh, when are the observations being made? And track them along in a trend-like fashion. That's something in critical care we don't do enough of. We tend to like to take snapshots, follow protocols, et cetera, uh, that's reactive, not proactive. You can be proactive if you know the trend line. Those are uh, great words for us to uh, sort of wrap up with. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out uh, both to make the observations you have and, and share them with all of us uh, and to take your time out today to speak with us on the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Uh, for the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Kyle uh, Infield. Thank you. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D. is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the Assistant Hospital Epidemiologist there, and he remains the Co-Medical Director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections.
Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.